story is one of those aspects with which all of us are, but none of us know why, none of us know how. We are all storytellers, every single one of us, because we tell stories. That, that's, I mean, it seems really simple. That's, that's what we do. And we may not even realize their stories. Uh, every time somebody says, hey, I, I don't quite understand what you mean. Give me an example. They're asking for a story and you give them a story. You give them an example. What they really want is context. And that's what story gives them is context, is a way for them to understand the point that you're making. This episode features a man that is a towering figure, literally. Stefan Mumau is an established author, speaker, storyteller, creative, and master idea generator and teacher. I've had the privilege to share a stage with Stefan. I've seen him engage large audiences and inspire small groups of creatives to see and feel the power of creativity, ideation, and story. Today, we go through his journey from the awkward tall kid to master storyteller. And since we haven't seen each other for a bit, we need to get a little warmed up. Enjoy the show. Thanks for making, thanks for making time for me. I, uh, I don't have time for you. Huh. It's good. This is starting off just as I imagined it. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so let me get going right away. I, you know, I, just to kind of get, um, started, uh, my, my question that I did a lot of research on. So I hope you're ready for it is oh, wow. what does being tall mean to you? You did do a lot of research on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can see that, you know, you, you, you found the right terms like tall mm-hmm. and mean. So that's mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. What does being tall mean to you? Um, it means I don't fit on flights. Okay. Uh, I have to buy my clothes online and my shoes online. So I never get to tell like uh, the quality of the clothes. I just, hey, it's my size. Uh, uh, I get asked to um, clean the tops of fridges and replace light bulbs um, in yeah. people's houses. So it's um, it's mostly a curse. Uh, there have been some good things that have kind of come from it. Yeah, let's you know, focus. Like, it's let's it's a new year. Let's be positive. Tell me about some of the positive things. All right. So um, when 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 the new year turned to uh, to 2000, right? Y2K. Yeah. Uh, my family and I were, uh, we spent Y2K that, that night in Disneyland. We went to Disneyland for the big event. So you were not and, worried that the world was coming to an end? Uh, we, well, if it was, we were going to do it in the happiest place on earth, right? So, That's good, good strategy. Uh, so you know, we're, we're walking around and, and, you know, at Disneyland because, um, because every time zone, like, tunes into Disneyland uh, at, the, at, the, at midnight there were there were like four midnights or three midnights, like at you know ten o'clock it's midnight, you know it's you know eleven o'clock it's midnight. So they they literally are telling you, hey everyone stop and do the countdown and go happy new year. And then when you see the lights go off, then you can go back to being at Disneyland. But for us, for California at at midnight, you you knew it was getting close to midnight because the crowd was getting closer and closer and tighter and tighter because everyone wanted to be on Main Street. And at one point, there was no more moving. It's about 10 minutes before. There's no more moving. You're just where you are. And this, this is where I'm going to be for the next half hour or so, 20 minutes. Um, I can't go left or right. There's just too many people. And I looked over to my left and there was uh, there was a woman who was maybe five feet tall. 
And she just kept asking her, her the, the people that, that she was with, what's going on? Where are we? What's happening? What's going on? And it was in that moment that I went, I, the difference between being tall and being short is this. All you see is the backside of the person in front of you. And I get to see everything else that's going on. So that's really the greatest advantage uh, to being tall is that I get to see what other people don't see. See, I thought you were going to say it's you get to look down on people, which I thought was going to be quite rude. Well, no, I I do get to do that, but not, I mean, both physically and, and metaphorically. The physically part is interesting because very few people worry about what this looks like because right. no one ever sees it but me. So I get to tell everybody, hey, just so you know, you got a weirdly shaped head. It ran on top and no one can see it. So, yeah. uh, so just for technicalities, right? Because I'm not sure this is online. How how tall are you officially? Uh, I am six eight. Uh, I'm actually six eight and one quarter. Uh, and I know this because the average door frame uh, is six foot eight, and I've got a little mark right on the top of my head. <laughs> just a flat uh, spot that constantly gets nicked right over and over and over again. A little nice. dent. So I'm going to say six, eight and a quarter. As I've gotten older, it's probably down to state. Nice. And, uh, you know, cause I'm on a theme, just one more question. Like, did you do sure. tall things when you were younger? Like, did you play basketball or, or have, uh, oddly have enough? Yeah. I, I to be that... honest, no, it really wasn't until high school, uh, in high school is when I started going, you know, maybe I should stop playing baseball where all the action takes place down here. Mm -hmm. and start playing the sports where all the action takes place up here. Uh, I was always tall, but I, I went from tall to freakishly tall in between my freshman and sophomore year. I left my freshman year at 6'5", and first day of sophomore year, I was 6'8". So you go three inches in three months, and you know everything cracks when you walk, all of your yeah. joints are all moving. Um, and I mean, insanely skinny. And that's when I went, you know, I, I really should be looking at the stuff that happens up here and not down there. So I, I really didn't pick up, like I didn't start playing volleyball until my sophomore year. I played basketball. I started playing basketball my in, uh, in eighth grade because I, I was a baseball player before then. And, uh, wow. and then I went, yeah, this isn't going to work out. So I moved on. Nice. Yeah. I think I know this answer, but I'll ask it anyways. Yeah. Uh, you went somewhere after high school to play basketball, did you not? I, I did, yeah. So um, I ended up playing basketball at Chapman University, nice. which is a, a, a small liberal arts school here in Orange County, uh, and really enjoyed my time, uh, my time there. It was, um, uh, I was playing for a coach who uh, I knew, he was an assistant coach at UC Irvine, when I was in high school, I went to University High School in Irvine, California, and he, it, it, I would do basketball camps at UC Irvine, and he was the assistant coach there. And so when I went to Chapman, he was the head coach at Chapman. Uh, so it was nice knowing Bo uh, before I came in and having some uh, having some experiences with him. And it was just, a, it was great. I loved it. So besides me making fun of you for being tall, because um, uh, you know I say this to you every time, and you always giggle as uh, to to help me feel better about myself. Is I, I literally look up to you. Well, that's because I know you're actually not talking about my height. You're talking about the character of the man. Right, the gravitas uh, of the of yeah. you know the intellect. Um, yeah. <laughs> Steph, we've been able to um, you know go on a lot of great trips together and and be at conferences together and have some really yeah. uh, wonderful conversations about you know work life and 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 everything else. So I really value that. 
and I can't wait to get to talk to you about story. Um, mm. But you know, we were talking about your your height and and um, and really, what I want to go back to is you know, as you made this you know sort of realization about sports and you know putting those things together, tell me about how creativity played in your life back then. You know, what what kind of you know we can start in high school. Like you know, did you know you were creative? Like um, as far as like you did creative things, like classes and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um... You know, I think I'm one of the, the lucky ones. I always knew I was going to end up in some form of creative field. And I knew it early on. You know, I, uh, like a lot of people, I grew up. How early? Uh, how early? I, yeah. I would probably say, you know, fifth, sixth grade. I kind of mm-hmm. knew um, I was going to end up in this, in, in not necessarily in where in the industry I'm in, but I knew I was going to do something where uh, I was making something where, where, you know, nothing existed before. And then, and then I, I would get involved in something would exist uh, after that. But it, it was, um, you know, I, I grew up fairly poor. Uh, it was just me and my mom growing up and we didn't really have the money to buy things. So uh, if I wanted something, I had to, in essence, make it. I remember in sixth grade um, go, going to the wood shop at the junior high down the street and asking them if I could use the, the machines to cut a board out of a piece of wood I found behind uh, behind a tub, behind a dumpster, um, and it was you know then that that somebody was like you know you probably don't want to stand on that that's only like this and and uh, uh, let's get you a better piece of wood and I had no idea how to use any of the machines you know and so it, it, for me it was sort of a uh, a resourcefulness of necessity that led to the making of things, right? I would make Christmas presents, we would make decorations for the house. Um, so I always I always loved making it. It was just a normal part of, of what I did as a kid. I wasn't a great artist. I'm not, I'm still not a great artist at all. I'm not even a good artist, um, but I did make, and I got really comfortable with making things and, and being resourceful in order to make those things. Uh, recognizing that I didn't need the perfect, I didn't need the perfect tools. I didn't need the perfect um, materials. I just needed a willingness to solve a problem, whatever the problem was kind of in, in front of me and just make. And so I made a lot of things when I was young. When I got into into high school and you start having these conversations about, well, at some point you're gonna go off to college and you're gonna major in something that's gonna become your job. You might wanna start thinking about what that's going to be now. But it manifested then as an architect it was the only profession I could think of in that moment that that made something, that they would draw it out and plan it and, and they went from their heads to their hands and they would make something. And it really wasn't until um, the later stages of, of high school um, that I sort of got, it got introduced to other aspects of it. I, I got introduced to design my senior year in high school uh, as, part of a, uh, as part of an art class. And you know, recognizing that, that it was, again, a very uh, insightful teacher who kind of comes over and says, you know, you, you might be thinking about uh, a, a career in some form of design. There's lots of things. And it was really that first introduction. You're like, oh, I didn't even know there were industries outside of, of architecture where you have to invent a, you know, invent a building. Um, and there was just so much math <laughs> in, in architecture. I'm like, man, you know, if I'm wrong, 
people die. That's a terrible pressure to have. Perhaps I should move <laughs> into something else that has a little bit less pressure, but I yet get to still make things. Plus, let's be honest, math is hard, you know? I mean, yeah, math is, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's, there are, there are smart people that are, that are intended to do that, and it is not me. Well, let me ask you this uh, question so. before you keep going uh, for a second. <clears throat> You'd said something earlier that I actually never knew about you, um, and that was that you didn't have a lot. Did you know that when you were a kid or in high school? Did you know that you didn't have a lot? Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I in in addition to that, when you're, uh, you know, you you have some sort of physical attribute that sets you apart. I was a foot taller than everybody. And in doing so, you stand out naturally. And knowing that uh, not, I was not only had, I had a, a different physical appearance, but it, growing up in Orange County, you know, in the uh, in the 80s, in the early 80s, it was pretty apparent by, you know, what everyone else had and I didn't have that, that you know, I, I grew up with a little bit less than other people had. Um, from a from a from a materials standpoint, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I was I was acutely aware to it, and oftentimes I think like a lot of young kids do, um, a little bit of shame rolls in, and you don't know why, you don't know where it comes from, so you hide that fact or you try to hide it as much as you can, mm-hmm. uh, just to, just to you, you know when you're young you just want to fit in, you don't want to stand out yet, and I'm already standing out physically. I I didn't want to stand out in any other way. It's like how do I hide this and keep this to myself? Mm. No, thanks for sharing that. And I mean, I had somewhat of a similar um, upbringing with my mom. And I think when I look back on it, I don't know if you can relate to this, that I was aware of of, like physical things, but I I felt very cared for and loved. Um, But that lack, uh, honestly, I feel in some way made me more creative. Yeah. I think it does. Again, the the, the idea of, of the resourcefulness of necessity, forcing you to see things that um, that aren't meant for those purposes in other ways, forcing you to create in order to have instead of buy in order to have. I think all of those things, um, uh, those the people that grow up without. I mean, you see it even in the the charity work you've done. You know, the time that you've spent in in Africa when you see the kids and the things that they make out of stuff that we would discard and not even see as useful in any way. And yet they're able to create entire worlds for themselves, uh, not only from toys, but but dolls and things that they would care for out of what we would consider to be trash. That's that's the that's the resourcefulness of necessity playing itself out in a, in a grander scale, even than what you and I grew up with. That's a great point. All right, so uh, you're in high school, you yeah. realize that you're gonna have to um, you know, declare a major at some point. How did that process at go? Yeah. Well, I, I, I always thought it was going to be architecture, and I felt really good about that. I had, I had, a, I had a direction, right? Something that I, I felt like I could do. And really, I didn't, I didn't start getting um, uh, alternate thoughts until my my senior year. And again, it was, uh, it was an art teacher who was like, yeah, you know, you might, you might find some value in these. And really, I really started seeing the the uh, alternate universes that that did exist and could exist. And I started falling in love with this idea of design because there was there was simply less math and less pressure. Um, but I could also expand what I was making and take some of that resourcefulness and apply it in a way that didn't have to be tactically correct, that I could communicate a message and I could tell a story with a thing that I made uh, and find value in it. And so I, I, I sort of decided early at that point, I'm, this is what I'm gonna pursue. This is what I'm gonna work towards. Um, I didn't know about art school. Um, art schools don't have basketball teams. 
So I, I was like, yeah, if, if I'm going to go to school after this, it's probably going to be on scholarship someplace. And yeah, you know, I can't remember the last school. national championship art school. Yeah. No, yeah. no, no, it doesn't. It doesn't really. Yeah, the, the Laguna College of Art and Design uh, doesn't have a, a really great uh, sports program. Uh, it's, it's not their focus, but it uh, it was my focus at the time. Right. I was going to play basketball and I was pretty decent at it. And somebody would pay for my schooling. Uh, to have me play and there's a there's a little bit of ego that goes with that and you've got feeling of being sure, wanted yeah. and needed and, uh, certainly wanted to approach that that's wonderful all right so you uh you know you you have your career in college and um you know so what was your degree officially in communication design okay all right and so for those listening to this that you know are not designers um uh you know, the communication design, you know, could go, go under the umbrella of graphic design and, and right. all that sort of thing, you know, right. so you, you had your, your portfolio and your shiny degree and you went out to take, take on the world. Uh, yeah. so wh- where did that, where did that lead you? Well, I, I, uh, I got lucky. Uh, and I think a lot of, um, a lot, a lot of, uh, positive things in our careers happen because we get lucky. We're in the right place at the right time. Um, I ended up, I ended up staying on where I interned. So I, I interned at a small production house called the Color Edge. Um, there was a there was a design aspect of the Color Edge, but they were mostly film and proofs. And these were guys that I knew, friend of a friend. We played basketball together during the summer. So I ended up uh, interning at, at this place. And, um, you know, they saw my portfolio and their response to my portfolio was, hey, while you're out looking for another job, you can stay here if you want and run run the film and proof machines. <laughs> like that's how bad my portfolio was. <laughs> like it wasn't even a consideration. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, yes, I'll do that. I'll stay on. Um, and I got you know my first real piece of of business advice going out into the real world. Um, the 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 guy, one of the guys that owned that that company, his name is Brian Tong, still a friend of mine now, and was a, uh, he and I were partners together actually, uh, in a venture after that. But uh, Brian, Brian, I remember in that first interview when I came on, Brian at the end of that said, make yourself invaluable. Hmm. And what he was getting at was find the areas that other people won't do and do them and do them really well and fit in the, the cracks in the spaces so that you can't be let go. So they have to hold on to you because you're fulfilling a value that they maybe didn't even know they were missing. And it was a really great piece of advice and I, I, I took it to heart. I, I would find out the things that other people didn't want to do. You know, we, um, one, of our, one of our clients was GE Bikes and we would do catalogs for GE Bikes uh, twice a year. And there would be hundreds of bikes that would go into these catalogs. And every single one of them would have to be stripped of their backgrounds. Every space in between every spoke would have to be stripped out by hand so we can place them on different backgrounds. And you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of bikes twice a year. Well, no self-respecting designer wants to spend hours and hours and hours stripping bikes, but I will because I'm new and I'm just trying to find a place. And that mentality led to an interesting time when um, we had clients, two clients in particular, started coming to us and saying, hey, there's a new thing that we're starting to see called the web and we want a website. Can you guys build that? And, you know, we're looking around and no one knows how to build a website. And I'm like, I'll do it. I don't have the slightest idea how to design a website. And what the was back then was 
so different than what it is today. Uh, but I said I would do it because I wanted to make myself invaluable. So I learned to code by myself, reading books at night, and I would design and apply that. And I would start building little itty bitty sites that would take hours to download through 288 modems, looking back <laughs> on it, really terrible, terrible things. Um, but that, that became the way with which I would make myself invaluable for probably the next 10 years. Um, was was to build for online. I didn't know what it would become then. It was just an opportunity for me to stay on, uh, but it became much more. Oh, that's a great that's a great life lesson. I don't think, um, <clears throat> you know, we don't talk about that enough. You know, uh, of working to make yourself invaluable in whatever you know situation, give the best of yourself in whatever that venture is. Or um, yeah. so you are a accomplished author. And um, I don't know about accomplished, but I'm an author. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is this is my podcast. I'm trying to pump you up here, right? Oh, yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, I'm yeah. an accomplished author. There you go. There you go. Bestseller. Um, <laughs> you are a bestseller. One of them. Yeah. Right. Well, hey, <laughs> so say, guess, say, yeah. say again. Come on. We're, we're um, work oh, with me right. here. Work with me here. Work with me here. Yeah. Accomplished yeah. author. Gotcha. Best, no, let me rephrase that. Stefan, you're a best-selling accomplished author. And I bring that yes. up because as you're talking about the website, I, if, I believe if my facts are correct, your first published book was about designing websites. It was, yeah. And uh, I didn't know how it worked. So I didn't know how the process worked. You Which know, part, you, the website or the book? Yeah, well, if you've seen my design, <laughs> probably both. Uh, no, it was it was the book. You know, the, the idea of a book, uh, you know, as a designer coming up, as a young designer, I love to design books. I get to see logos and I get to see brochures and I get to see all these things, ads that from places that I've never seen before and it's very inspiring. But I'm starting to build and work in an industry that I don't know anything about, right? I, I'm starting to build websites and, and I don't really know that much about this, this world, right? And there, all, of the, all of the inspiration for this world exists online. No one would make a book about a website that's sort of, that's, that's against the laws of nature, right? right. Uh, so I, there was no real resources for that. And, and over the course of time, I had collected, you know, hundreds of really what I thought were well-designed sites. And the other people in the agency were like, hey, you were showing us that website for whatever. That had a really cool, you know, header for it. Send, send that to me again. I wanted to, I want to see that again. And I'd be sending these things out. And all of a sudden, I became a resource for that. So I thought, well, why don't I write a book? I mean, I don't even have to write it. I just have to have page after page of well-designed websites. <laughs> so I don't even have to do much to, to be published, right? So I don't know how the process works. So I just designed it because I'm a designer and I wrote it because I can. And so I made the whole book myself and then I went out and shopped it. And it became really clear, really fast. That's not how the process works. Nope. You don't design and write something and then go ask the publisher if they want to buy it. They would rather have a say in what you make, how many colors you use, what the size of this thing is, you know, they'd rather have a say in that. And it really wasn't until there was one particular uh, publisher that said, hey, you know, this was like my fifth or sixth uh, shot at somebody. I said, hey, it's not really how it works. And I said, well, can you tell me how it works? And she's like, well, let me tell you how it works. And she kind of educated me. And then in doing so, she's like, you know, I, I may have, um, I may have a project that you might be a fit for. 
And what's interesting is that the, the, the woman that I spoke to that day, and this was a long time ago, this was like 1997, 98, somewhere in there, um, maybe 99. You know, the, the woman that I talked to, she was the acquisitions editor there. And she, in that conversation, she, is, she has since opened me up to so many more opportunities. 20 years later, 25 years later, her name's Kristen Ellison, and she was the acquisitions editor for Rockport. Little quick show note here. Kristen Allison is an extraordinary and incredible human who has greatly impacted both my and Stefan's life. She has been on the show and I highly recommend listening to her episode, which was episode 21 and her philosophy of being a good shipmate. Back to the show. She, she said, let me show you how it works. And, and then after she told me, she was like, I think I have a project that might be good for you. Uh, we just lost an author and it's on, it's on web design. And, it, and, and we think that you would be a good uh, replacement for that. Are you interested? And that became Simple Websites, my very first book. That's awesome. Well, you said something very interesting uh, and I'm gonna circle back to it. And that was the fact that you can write, which is not um, a gift that all designers or all creatives for that matter have, you know, um, in my opinion, in my experience. And so I just wanna circle back a little bit to not so much writing, but um, a a topic that I feel like you have great depth and experience on, and that is idea generation, you know, coming up with ideas and whether that's ideas to write or ideas to create. And, you know, how did you get into that space? You know, uh, was it because of maybe a lack of uh, ability or, or going on a, on a journey to figure out how you could have more ideas share with me how did you how did you go there how'd you get there yeah it's um the, the the concept of ideation is sort of inbred into us as designers it's a natural part of our process in order for us to execute on, on a design we have to have the idea for it to begin with and so the, the the act of ideation was just sort of included in the way that we would execute the work that we did and as a designer, it took me a while. Um, it took me nearly 10 years of sort of soul searching. What was it about design that I loved? And for the longest time, uh, I thought it was design. I thought I loved design, the making of something where you know I could take this vision and I could execute it and make something that didn't exist before. And it, it took it took a while. It took a decade for me in, in an active active reflection to recognize that I didn't really love design. I loved the idea. I loved seeing the idea come to life. The design was simply the vehicle to get there. And I, I found that in instances with which uh, I was involved in the ideation of a project, I had considerably more joy and more happiness than when I was only there to design. When I would take the idea of somebody else and make it come to, to come to reality, there was a joy to that. There was a happiness to it, but not nearly as much as when it was uh, an idea that I bore. And so I, I had always been, because of my upbringing, because of the fact that I made a lot of things, I had always been, um, it had always come fairly easy for me to, to take an idea and to generate and create that idea without a level of preciousness to it that somebody can go, I don't think it's a good idea. And I can go, that's all right, I got lots more, let's keep going. Um, and generate more solutions to that problem. Multiple solutions to a single problem was a normal part of the way I grew up. And so all of a sudden I get into my into my professional life and now people are going to pay me to generate ideas 
and then execute on them. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You're going to give me money for that? Uh, I would have done it for free, but I'm not going to tell you that now. <laughs> now I'm, I'm going to do it and get paid to do it. And the, the, as soon as I kind of came to that realization, the idea that it was, it was ideation that I fell in love with, I had to ask myself, then how do I do it better? How do I get better at it? And so I started asking people around me, you were one of them. You, how, I, what, what's the process you go through? Um, what is it, what is it that you to generate ideas? And what I found was we all have very similar processes for ideation. Um, the, the disconnect was that because we are professionals at what we do, we typically take one of the first ideas we generate and then go off and make it because generating an idea is instantaneous, but making an idea takes time. And so we recognize that our jobs are, 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 are predicated on time that we're, we're in essence paid for and our, our relationships with our clients are based on the length of a, of a project. So we, we have to take time to make the thing. Um, so if, if you think about that, that process that we spend this much time generating an idea and then this time, much time making it, if the idea we generate isn't very good, then what we make isn't going to be very good. So could I take the time up front and generate more? Could I learn how to go through the process and generate more ideas at the very least to validate the one I moved forward with? And so I started, I started really pushing myself to not only come up with a solution, but multiple solutions. And I ingrained it in part of my, my process. If I was given a day to generate ideas and three weeks to make it, I would spend that day generating as many as I could, not just generating one and feeling good about it. Uh, but that day all of a sudden turned to an hour, then turned to, to 20 minutes, then turned to 10 minutes. So I had to get good at it really quickly. Um, and so I started learning from as many people as I could on how they did it and then applying what I've learned to that process. And all of a sudden you start to, to generate a philosophy on how to generate ideas and what it is that you fall in love with in the act of generating ideas. Ideas are easy. Executing is difficult. But in the context of ideas, there's, there's a beauty to the creation of something, the spark of something that um, is frankly the same over all of time that everything from governments to banner ads all started with one idea. It all started with one thing. The same process I'm going through is the same process the forefathers went through to invent the place that we live in. It's the same process that anyone went through to invent anything in all of history. And we get to engage in that process on, on a, on a day-to-day basis for the clients that we work for. Um, and there's something, there's something sacred and special about it, something that I love. And I never get, I never get disappointed when a client's like, you know what, I, I appreciate the ideas, but it's not quite right for us. Can you come up with more? Heck yeah, I can come up with more. This is the best part of the day. You're going to pay me to do it again? I'll do it again. I love this part. I want to solve this problem over and over and over again uh, because it's just, it's it's so intoxicating and so wonderful. Mm. Well, that was inspirational. Thank you for that. This is, this is, uh, this is why I love doing this. Um, well, let's, let's build off that. So sure. uh, then what sorts of things inspire you or influence you? Um, would you say that part of the, the idea generation process is also having things that you can, um, you know, dip into from a reservoir standpoint, like influences and, and that sort of thing? You know, what are those for you? Yeah. You know, when I was young, the things that would influence me or inspire me were, were the things that people made, right? And I think this is actually a natural progression. Uh, my daughter just started her first job in the industry as a graphic designer two weeks ago. And all of a sudden I get to, I get to see the same process play out on her that played out in me. 
we, we have a tendency to be inspired by the things that are identical to the problem we're solving. So if we're designing a website, we look at other websites for inspiration. If we're designing an ad, we look at other ads. Designing a logo, we look at other logos. As we mature, we recognize that the influence those inspirations have on the work that we do is too great to allow me to look at apples and apples. I can't keep looking at logos to design a logo because what I'm seeing in the way that they solve their problem, I'm starting to unconsciously take. And the problem they solve is very different than the problem I'm solving, even though visually it might be similar. So I have to find my inspiration in other things. But yet I still, even though I moved out of apples to apples, I would still look at design. If I was designing a website, I would start looking at poster design and advertising design and finding inspiration in other aspects of design. But they were still design. I was still putting up two pieces of design, which is the visual problem solving in a similar way, just for different mediums. And as I started to grow, I started to understand that I can find my inspiration in other things. I can look at buildings. I can look at I can look at product design or cars or anything else and find inspiration for the type of design I'm doing, whether that's identity design or, or website design or advertising design. But I've even grown a little bit more from that. And and all, really over the last decade, what I what I get inspired by now are people. And I know it sounds a little um, a little odd, a little a little touchy feely, but to see the way that somebody uh, processes a problem and how they solve it is incredibly inspiring to the to to any of the work that I do. To see um, certain people have have an infectious joy about the work that they do, to to never get visibly frustrated that they're always positive, that they always uh, approach a problem with, with new joy or with, with uh, you know, a, a new emphasis on opportunity. Those are the people that, that I get inspired by. I'm inspired by the way that people approach the work they do in any, in any uh, industry, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, I remember when I was younger, I didn't know, I didn't know what I was looking at then, I do now. Uh, I was working at uh, the Brain Yard, which was the agency I worked at when I first graduated, uh, the one that I had interned for. And uh, one of our clients was Pioneer Pro DJ, uh, all the DJ equipment that Pioneer makes. And we were, we were helping them create a trade, show, a trade show environment. And one of the things that we were going to create was this kiosk that lived inside their trade show. And we decided that we wanted to have this built out of the same materials that a DJ coffin's made out of, the travel boxes and the wood and the wood things that that DJs use to travel from show to show. And we found a manufacturer of that here in Southern California, and we went and met with them. And we go into a shop, and it's in this little strip mall. You wouldn't even know what it is, and it's got this little, you know, uh, a reception desk, and that's all that's that's all that's all that's there. And you're like, what, where is all the stuff that they make? There's got to be a warehouse nearby, right? And so we go to meet with the guy, he comes out of a door and he is this grizzled old guy, big long beard, like ZZ top beard, right? Hair is frazzled, he's super thin. He's in a, he's in a, uh, um, uh, like, uh, like a, a denim, like a, a full denim outfit, but it's just torn up. And he's like, can I help you? And I said, you know, we, I told him where we were from and what we were trying to accomplish. And we wanted to build this kiosk out of, out of the materials. And I could see him start to turn. I could see it in his face. I could see it in his eyes. We started to talk about what it is that we wanted to build. And he goes, hold on for a second. He goes back out through this door, comes back out with this 
old school chalkboard, like on wheels, the type of thing that spins. It's got two sides. Right. And he starts he starts drawing it on this chalkboard. And all of a sudden, I, I stop explaining what it is I'm looking for because he took over. And he starts explaining what we need instead of what it is that I want. And he had a passion for this the moment he caught on to it. And, and all of a sudden he starts to design and he starts to make. And it, I realized it then that this is his world and he's in this world to create and everything he creates is custom because it's, it's DJ boxes. He makes, create, he makes custom DJ boxes. And as soon as he caught the vision, then he could now take over and this old guy who was a little grizzled and kind of beat up, and I definitely wouldn't point to and go, that guy's a creative guy. He just, he absolutely blew up. And his face got bright and his design got there and he got so excited. And when he got excited, I got excited. I'm like, yeah, I want to do that. Yeah, let's go make that thing. And I, I, I look back now and I'm like, you know, it wasn't, I don't even know what the design of the kiosk was. I don't remember the kiosk. I don't remember the thing we were making. I do remember the way his face lit up. The world that he lived in, that's how he made. That's how he created. And his passion led to my passion. And all of a sudden, I've started looking in my life for people like that, that could inspire me beyond the work that I'm doing, but make it a little bit longer lasting. It's, it's you know, it's not just, I don't just need the tank of gas. I need, I need the hybrid engine. I need mm -hmm. the thing that can keep it going. Uh, and people do that. So I'm inspired by people. Mm, that's awesome. Thank you for that. Well, <clears throat> you are one of those people for me, by the way. And wow, well, I think uh, one of my, I think one of the greatest pieces of, um, well, to me it was art, but one of the, one of the things that you made that really just um, blew me away was when you presented about story, the, you kind of broke down the construction of, of story and, and you used it. Um, I believe this is the talk that you used uh, Shawshank Redemption on um, being a, yeah. being a fellow cinephile um, mm -hmm. who we, you know, we both love movies. Um, so tell me about story and uh, making that. Cause it feels like you get inspired by people. Like you just told me a great story, right? That it was a wonderful story. And I feel you're a natural storyteller, which in our world, that's, that's what we try to do, right? We, we try to weave these stories that, that connect with people to get people to see things different or to buy or to donate or, you know, it's kind of the world we exist in. So tell me about, tell me about story for you. Well, you know, it, it you are, you are referring to uh, a talk that I had given. Um, the Shawshank Redemption clip was, I, I used it as an example. Um, because filmmakers are are brilliant at it but it's also it's also a charge that we have as designers as creatives and we're actually really good at it too we just never really put a finger on it that story is one of those aspects with which all of us are but none of us know why none of us know how we are all storytellers every single one of us because we tell stories that, that's i mean it seems really simple that's that's what we do and we may not even realize their stories. Uh, every time somebody says, hey, I, I don't quite understand what you mean. Give me an example. They're asking for a story and you give them a story. You give them an example. What they really want is context. And that's what story gives them is context, is a way for them to understand the point that you're making. 
And you, you, when you get into like filmmaking to the degree with which um, movies like Shawshank Redemption get, there are there are minute emotions that are being communicated that you don't even realize they're being communicated to you, that you you can't put your finger on. But the I think the clip that I used in that uh, was after one of the inmates got released. He's an old man and and he ends up killing himself on the outside. And we can't understand why, because to us, freedom would be the thing that, that we would think everybody would want. But to him who had been institutionalized, um, freedom was solitude. It was aloneness. At least he had friendship and how important that was on the inside. And we don't realize why we, why we feel sad for him. It's because the filmmakers took all these little clues all these little things that we didn't even realize they were doing to tell that story. You know, in, in that, in that thing, there's one particular scene, he's riding a bus and we don't realize it at the time because we're focused on him. He's the subject of the shot, but nobody on the bus, we see does other people and not a single other person is looking at him. No one ever speaks to him in any of the scenes. The only time that he's spoken to is to be chastised by his boss when he's at the grocery store. And in that way, it creates a solitude we didn't even know existed in the context of the way the filmmakers were were describing um, what was happening. We as designers, we do the same thing. We're actually inserting story into our work without us even knowing it. Why do we choose the colors we choose or the, or the composition? You know, why do we create tension or relieve tension? You know, why do we use uh, sans serif type instead of serif type? What is, it, what is it that we're subconsciously communicating in that moment? We, not, we may not be able to put our, our fingers on it, but we are uh, accomplished storytellers in our work. You know, I've always been a fan of the movies like you, and I, I never really understood why, why I love the movies so much. It was just something that I did, but it, 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 I didn't put pieces together really until, uh, you know, fairly recently, in the last 10 years of my life that what I did as a designer and why I love the movies were in essence the same thing, that I could be moved without knowing I'm being moved, that I could have an influence on the way somebody thinks or acts, that I could move them from visceral response to, to behavioral response, to reflective response, not because I've manipulated them, but because there's, uh, there's something I know about them that impacts them that I have that control as a designer and as a creator. And I could put those two worlds together and I could use story to communicate more effectively in the work that I do. Uh, and I think all of us as designers, we might see, our, see a, a, you know, I'm just creating a banner ad. Well, you're not really. You're creating a, a, a piece of a story, a story with which starts with the person who views it before they ever see your banner ad and ends with what they do after they see your banner ad. There's a narrative that exists there and you're in control of it. If you'll understand what they were doing before and if you'll understand what moves them to do uh, anything after, you are in essence a filmmaker, even though you're only creating one frame of the film. That frame can be incredibly powerful uh, if, if you'll take the time to recognize what's coming before and after. So for me, story is just simply a mechanism for, for which I can be a better communicator. Um, it helps design move 
more effectively into the hearts and minds of the people who view it. Um, plus, I get to I get to make narratives and create narratives. And in in my world, in a world that where I grow up in advertising and design, it's as it's as close to filmmaking as I'll ever get. Right? Yeah, I, I'm not a filmmaker to the degree with which um, you know these amazing filmmakers are producing these stories. But I am a filmmaker in a small bit, and I do have an audience, and that audience has needs and wants and desires, if I'll take the time to understand them. And I can create something, I can create a narrative or a story that influences them in the same way that I was influenced from a very young age by the movies I'm watching. <clears throat> That's wonderful. So I have a few. I want to know if you have a few. Let's say you're, you know, you're having one of those weeks where you're just like, man, I need to escape into a story or, or re-energize myself. Do you have a couple go-to movies and why those movies when you want to, you know, just get that spark relit? Yeah. Well, I, um, while I am a, I am a huge fan of movies, I am a cinephile. Uh, I, what I love about the movies really is the theater. I love the theater. And you and I have had this conversation before. Um, your love of the movies isn't isn't uh, just relegated to movies you see in the theater. You love story and every aspect of story. And while I do have an appreciation and love for story, uh, my my energy comes with the theater. It it comes with it comes with the seclusion, with being sequestered in and being immersed in the story for the time that I'm there. When I'm sitting in a theater watching a movie, uh, I I can't be got by anything. Any, any of the guilt of what I should be doing instead of being there goes away for the for the time that I'm there. Plus, I get a really big popcorn and a really big soda, and I can feel okay about that, right? Uh, so it's, it's the theater. So when I want to escape, it's really the theater. And for me, it's about new stories. I very rarely ever see a movie more than once because it, to me, if I'm going to spend the time to watch a movie again, uh, it's a time I could be watching something new. And that new experience and the new story and what I gain from not knowing where something's going is part of the attraction for me. So it's about, it's about there's a newness to it. And I'll, I'll literally see anything. There's really only one genre I, I don't love, and that's horror because I don't go to the movies to be moved in that way. <laughs> you know, some yeah. people say they go to the movies to be moved in any way. I, I don't know, fear is not one of the things that I, I enjoy feeling. And so it's not something that I typically would go see, but just about every other genre, I'll see anything as long as it's new. Um, and even if I know it's gonna be bad, there's still redeeming qualities to it. I'm still in the theater, I'm still experiencing this. I can still learn from it. Um, from the way that, that things work or even don't work. We've all been in movies where we're like, I don't know what it is about that movie, but I just, it just didn't feel right. Well, then mm -hmm. let's find out why it didn't feel right so I can apply that, apply the, the, the learning from that to what it is that I'm making. So for me, it's not necessarily going back to a film. It's, it's really going to the theater, uh, which makes the pandemic fantastic because yeah. um, there are no theaters for me to go to. So uh, I've, I've reintroduced myself and reintroduced my family to the drive-in. Uh, and we've fallen in love with the drive-in all over again to be able to experience this in a very different way. Uh, it's not quite going into a movie theater, but it's close. Yeah, that's great. I, in a normal world, right? How, how many times are you in a movie theater per week? 
Well, per, per week, one or two. So I, I'll probably see between 120 and 130 movies a year uh, in the theater. It's, um, it is sort of my happy place. It's definitely twice, well, it's definitely twice, a, just about twice a weekend. So, you know, I'm, I'm seeing eight to 10 movies a month. Oh, that's great. In fact, <clears throat> uh, another thing I love about you is 99.9% .9 of the time, and this is also irritating, but I love it more times than not. I can text you and be like, Steph, it's this movie or this movie. What am I seeing? And you'd be like, oh, don't see that one. See this one. Um, because, you know, I, I, my, my, my kids are in a different stage than yours. So, you know, uh, my, my uh, weekends tend to be packed. So if I have a chance, yeah. I really want to, uh, you know, um, go to the movie that has the, the, the most... Um, you know, stuff review points that I can get. Um, <laughs> well, because... it is the advantage of going to see this is that uh, most likely any two movies you're going to put up, I've probably seen both. Uh, so I can at least give you that insight. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So, you know, you've written uh, many other books about, you know, uh, brainstorming and collaboration and, and uh, you know, you are great at generating ideas and uh, as we talked about earlier, a best-selling accomplished author. Um, but <laughs> one, of, one of the narrative threads that I, I didn't know until this, this very moment is if I look back on your narrative, it goes back to that making. And in that making is really uh, your story. And that's really, it's really beautiful. Do you, ever, do you ever think about that? Yeah, actually I do, you know. Um... There were there were times growing up that you go you know what I'm I'm going to do everything I can as a father to never subject my daughter to what it is I had to do with this or you know this experience or uh, you know she'll she'll never have to know you know what what um, what it meant as a you know to, to have to walk to kindergarten like I, those are things that she'll never have to, to never will have to experience but you know we've we've talked a little bit about that um, resourcefulness of necessity that I think is uh, ingrains a certain level of, of appreciation and understanding that without it, I don't know that I, I become who I become if it wasn't for the, the making of that, right? If it was, if I didn't have to make Christmas ornaments uh, because we, we, we couldn't buy them. And you're like, uh, you know, I had to make dozens of them. At the time, I didn't say to myself, man, I've got to make dozens of these. I got to make dozens of these. <laughs> And it's a, it's a small change in a word, but it matters, right? You know, the, the work that we do now, we often say, well, I have to make this. I got to make these banner ads. I have to make this logo, whatever. You don't have to. You, you get to. And that small change in perspective and attitude, it matters in the way that you approach the work you do. You know, I've often said as designers, if, um, if, if we, if, if we need to love the output of the things that we're making in order for us to be happy, we're going to be disappointed for our entire careers because we don't control the, the end product of what we make. We're doing it for somebody else. And in the end, they control that. But if you fall in love with the act of making, of making something, just the process of making it, if you fall in love with the process, you'll be happy in this industry for the rest of your life. You'll find joy in it because it doesn't matter what the outcome becomes. You get to make again. You get to create again. That you get to apply that that creative charge and juice again, over and over and over again. You fall in love with the process and you'll be happy the rest of your life. And I think I learned that growing up 
because I never saw it as a chore. I never saw it as the thing. As a matter of fact, every Christmas I made new ornaments. Why would I do that? Because I loved it. I loved to make it. It was just making something new. And it didn't even matter what the end result was, just the act of making. And I think I learned it then. Do you still have some of those ornaments? Uh, no, they were trash. I got rid of those things fast. <laughs> there's, the, there's the real truth right there. Yeah, uh, I yeah. love it. Um, my last question, my man, <clears throat> if you could go back in uh, a Stefan time machine and mm. talk to you at any point really big in your, <laughs> yeah, it, it would be quite, the door would be at least 10 foot tall. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you can go back and talk to you at any stage, what stage would that be, you think? And, and what advice would you give yourself? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, I would go back. Uh, I would go back to that time, elementary school, uh, third, fourth grade, when I'm first becoming aware that um, uh, you know my family doesn't have the money that other families have, that they don't have, that I don't have the things that other people have, and I would. I would tell myself, you're going to feel shame and you shouldn't. You should feel joy because what you're, what you're gaining by, by having to do what you have to do and having to make what you have to make will serve you in ways that you don't know yet. Um, if, I, if a fourth grader could understand that, that's what I would say. Uh, I also would have probably put a basketball in my hands at that level and said, mm. if you could learn to use your left hand, that'll probably serve you too. Um, but yeah, I would probably, I would probably go back to that third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade version of me and say, you don't have to be ashamed for any of this because this is what's going to lead to the greatest happiness you're going to have professionally um, that, that you'll ever experience uh, in your career. Um, you're going to look back and be thankful for this. So enjoy it now. Um, I don't know that I would have listened. Um, I had a, I had a really big head and a lot of hair, so I probably could have hurt myself. But uh, if I could, that's what I would do. Well, my my friend and my brother, it's it's been a joy to getting to talk to you. I, I've learned uh, some things about you I didn't know, uh, and I'm grateful for that. And uh, I will. Um, just say that uh, I can't wait till we get to see each other in person again and 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 share stories and uh, maybe even let Vaughn join us um, I can't no, that's I can't. that's now that's now off the table um, <laughs> I'll make I've, sure I've come to that realization too that's a new learning that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, 2020 taught us so many things but I'll make sure I keep this in the show so we can hear it um, yeah, that's the that's the part that uh, actually just lead with it. Be that yeah. be have the whole the whole show is just that one piece. <laughs> just start and you're fine. And then end. Yeah. Hey man, thanks, buddy. I really appreciate you. Hi, right, brother. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you doing. Thank you, Stefan, for your honest and thoughtful encouragement. Anytime I get a chance to hang out with you or listen to a talk, I see it as a gift. For more on Stefan, his work, various books, or to hire him for a workshop, go to stefanmumau.com. I would also like to thank Sleeping At Last for providing our show's soundtrack now in our seventh season. For more on Ryan and his music, please go to sleepingatlast.com or search for Sleeping At Last wherever you get your music. To design of Zaudi engineer Steve Wick, 
who was greatly inspired by Stefan's height and humility. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did making it. If so, please give us a ranking wherever you get your podcast from. Tell us about our show and stay tuned for the next episode. Please follow us on Twitter at Design of Podcast and check out our site at rule29.com forward slash design of podcast. See you next episode.